Hey folks, welcome back to Research and Review, where we have the opportunity to discuss a research paper with one of the scientists who wrote it. Today's paper is a quantitative analysis of how MEC controls T-cell proteomes and metabolic pathways during T-cell activation, which may sound intimidating, but I promise will make loads of sense by the end of the episode. The open access link to the study is in the description and is worth the read. Today's guest received her PhD in Immunology at the Walter and Eliza Hall Institute of Medical Research in Melbourne, Australia. Her work in immune cell activation brought her to the University of Dundee, where she investigates the way that these cells incorporate external signals to defend against pathogenic threats. Outside the lab, she's a strong advocate for public engagement in science, both in Australia and in the UK. Welcome, Dr. Julia Marchingo. Thanks, thanks for having me. No worries. So how did you first get interested in immunology? Um, yeah, the honest answer to that is I had really good lecturers at university. And they were really at the cutting edge of immunology and just the way they described the field and the, sort of the beauty of the complexity of the system just really like drew me in. I, I actually only did one immunology subject at university, but that was enough. I was hooked. Really? Yeah, it said, in, it said in your profile that you did biomedical sciences for your undergrad. Yeah, that's correct. I majored in, I, don't know, I guess you'd call it cellular biology and biochemistry, but as part of that I got the chance to do one immunology subject and sort of mostly picked it because I didn't quite know what immunology was. <laughs> but it's sort of this concept of how does the body defend itself against disease. It sort of sounded really interesting and important for human health. Mm-hmm. which was something that I was interested in doing through my science. Sort of, I was interested in learning about how the body works because it, it's just amazing if you think about it. Like, sort of all these complex cells and processes happening every day and somehow we survive. <laughs> exactly. Um, that's really interesting. So once you did your bachelor's, you went on to do your PhD at the Walter and Eliza Hall Institute for Medical Research. What about that institute, you know, attracted you? Sort of very much just a chance connection with um, the scientists there. So I did my PhD with um, Professor Phil Hodgkin there. And so I was looking on his projects in the field of immunology and I was just wandering around the open day. And I met him and we just struck up this great conversation. It was really just meeting a person who kind of had an interest that interested me as well. Uh, what I also really liked about his work was that he took a very quantitative approach to science. He sort of um, views the immune system as sort of like physics almost. Like in physics, there's sort of equations for, like there's theories and there's processes, but then there's mathematical equations to describe them. Like biology is messy and complicated, but you can still quantify it and apply sort of these quantitative models to it to make sort of, um, to describe the overall system and make predictions about if I, if I, you know, influence the immune system in this way, then this is the outcome I expect. Um, and so that really appealed to me as well as sort of a closet maths nerd. <laughs> <laughs> because of how finely tuned the immune system is, and we know examples of it going wrong, there must be a somewhat mathematical component to it, because it can't be random that, you know, the way that the, sort of the cells interact with each other. Do you, would, you, would you say that there's an argument for a qualitative approach to it? But you can't be all 
qualitative because most things in biology are not all or nothing. Um, no, no, absolutely. So once you did your your PhD, um, you ended up as a postdoc at the University of Dundee in uh, Doreen Cottrell's lab. What's What's it like working as a, a as a as a postdoc? You know, it's the I guess the level where you're considered uh, a scientist that can independently sort of run and drive projects. Um, but typically, you sort of work under a um, sort of you work within a laboratory with a lab head, and they sort of fund projects, and your project sort of fits within their their scope. But it's it's a super fun job. <laughs> you know, you've got your principal investigator who sets the theme of the lab and ultimately drives the directions and projects. But they sort of get you know, higher end postdocs who you know have have. Like us, trained scientists never have the intellectual capability and skills to, to sort of do and drive projects relatively independently of their PI. Like different principal investigators are involved to different extents. Like very hands-on and talk, talk to about the projects all the time. Other ones sort of, you talk about it at the start and then you go off. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. And then outside of the, the lab, you're involved in a lot of public engagement. Do you, do you believe that public engagement is an integral part of science? You know, it's very obviously right now, it's very important to communicate science and the scientific process with, with coronavirus and the administration of the vaccines and all of the challenges that have come up with that. It's just, yeah, it, it's just, it, I think it's a part of every scientist's job to sort of communicate what they can, how they can. Um, you know, the general public, they're not idiots. But yeah, so the, the public absolutely are interested and they want to know, but you need to do it in such a way that you don't need to get a three-year degree in order to understand a single sentence. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. <laughs> but yeah, we'll move on to your um, your paper that we'll be looking at today. And when I first saw it, it was a big scary title, but after, you know, taking it apart, it's it's not as it's not as scary as it first looks. What brought you to, you know, choose this as your uh, your focus for your for your paper? Um, so I guess um, how did we end up on these projects? Uh, I guess the interest came from two different directions for me. My PhD was on this question of how T cells um, they're white blood cells, that their job is to kill virus-infected cells or cancerous cells, how T-cells put together multiple different signals to control sort of how rapidly and how many times they divide, so how big a clonal army they make, and also how well they survive once they've done that. So will they stick around long enough to actually perform their functions? Um, and so one of the really key... Um, one of the really key um, things that we found out in my PhD lab was that there's this really important protein called MYC that multiple different signals sort of integrate down upon to control the level of. And this protein MYC is really important for controlling the number of times or the amount of time that the cells can divide for, so therefore how big a clonal army you can make. So that's sort of where the, the interest from my PhD lab was coming from. Um, my postdoc lab um, was also really interested in this protein because it's really important in the T-cell immune response mm-hmm. um, and really important in um, well, controlling lots of stuff. <laughs> so sort of those two, those two things combined, um, for us to want to study further what the role of protein MYC is in a T-cell immune response. Um, 
so how we got to this project was like um, it was to try and understand how um, changing or deleting the expression of this protein that we know to be really important make changes the proteins that are in the cell um, but they haven't really done a good unbiased um, analysis on that mm-hmm. so sort of the all of the interests combined <laughs> together to bring us to the point where, where we wanted to look at, um, you know, what what happens to the T cell during what is expressed by the T cells um, when they activate in the absence of MIC. Mm-hmm. When you you know you when you set your eyes on MIC. Uh, was there a concern that by removing MEC you were going to cause you know low, like so many other unintentional changes, or was the or was that the point of the 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 paper was? We knew that we would be causing other unintentional changes. I guess that's sort of the inevitable part of it. In some regards, a project where you delete MEC and then look at what's there. It's not really a project about what isn't there. It's a project about what is. Like, I guess the transcription factor is kind of its reputation is that it does everything, like, is that it controls, like, you know, all of these processes sort of in cell metabolism, in production of protein, in synthesis of DNA, in sort of, and like the, the study you alluded to about the controversy of how does MIC work, there's this idea out there that, Mm-hmm. MIC is not like a traditional um, transcription factor protein. The idea is that if any gene is, is switched on, MIC amplifies that. So it's just a universal amplifier of whatever the cell's doing already. It's this sort of concept that's been in the field for the last, I don't know, 10 years now. So when you delete MIC, you accept the fact that you are going to regulate a lot. But then also, what actually, what's left when MIC is gone? Yeah. Kind of like an analogy is that you know it's in a classroom and then you know all the focus is on the brightest student but if you take them away like how good are the other students you know you don't really that was a terrible analogy it worked well in my head but <laughs> uh, yeah it's like if you do that but on the way out they like i don't know take out the students actually no it's like if, it's like if the brightest student also drives the bus to school yeah <laughs> <laughs> so for uh for the the experiment itself, um, you grew, uh, you you had two sets of of mice, and half of them had the MIC gene, and the other one uh, had it knocked out of them, and then from there you, uh, uh, you you induced uh, using CD three and CD two eight, and then you analyzed it using um using mass spectrometry. Is there a reason you chose that technique rather than other techniques? If you want to look at an unbiased look of the expression level of as many proteins as possible, mass spec's really the only way to do that mm-hmm. um, out there that I can think of. <laughs> Like, if you want to measure, um, like, like, sort of other ways you can look at gene expression in cells is you can look at um, this sort of intermediary messenger molecule called RNA, um, which I'm sure also people are fairly familiar with the idea of right now. (laughs) (laughs) But um, you can look at that as well. But one of the interesting things to note is that although the amount of messenger RNA you have 
it correlates with the amount of that protein you have. There's a lot of other processes after the message is made that controls how much protein you've got. Like I guess mass spec is kind of how efficiently that protein is made. Whether once it's been made, if it, it sort of gets modified and that um, destroys it at a certain rate. So I guess if you mess it, if you mess it, if you measure <laughs> RNA expression, you don't. Um, it doesn't necessarily mean you know how much protein mm -hmm. is there for that protein. Um, and so since proteins are really the functional units of the cell, like you want to measure the protein expression. Um, that tells you what's really there not what has the potential to be there or like you know had the potential to be there um, like you know you, you so you want to measure the protein um, like it's not to say that measuring the RNA is not valuable but um but you know if you want to know what's there in the cell and what the functional units are you've got to measure the protein um, so mass spec is the way that you can do that in an unbiased manner um, sort of other methods to measure protein typically rely on things like um, antibodies, sort of, these are another type of protein that sort of you can generate to specifically label a certain, like a specific protein. Um, and I guess antibodies, like your ability to, to quantify what's there or even identify what's there is only as good as the antibodies itself. And for when you sampled um, the mice, you did it after 24 hours, uh, why did you choose 24 hours specifically? Uh, 24 hours. So I described to you the, earlier sort of how the T-cell response works. They receive a lot of signals, they grow a whole bunch, and then they start dividing like crazy. So 24 hours is a time point at which it's activated, it's grown, it's sort of reached, like I guess it's full um, metabolic and biosynthetic potential, so sort of it's full um, energy and protein production potential. But it hasn't yet started doing those really crazy fast divisions um, that sort of then just expand and make multiple copies. Um, and so in the case of Nick, we, we know that the cells uh, are not able to divide when they don't have it. So for Mick, um, they basically are dead by 48 hours. So you've got to pick some time before. And for, for your quantification, uh, you used a proteomic ruler. How, what's the best way to describe that? is really cool. When you want to think about protein expression in cells, there's something just really intuitive if you can think about how many copies of a protein you've got in a cell. The protein copy numbers is just a really intuitive number that people can sort of understand in their heads. So it's really good to be able to sort of measure like the abundance of a certain amount of protein in a cell it gives you a real feel for if something's actually important or if it's even there enough for, for it to matter which something like intensity or fold change of expression is just those sorts of values don't quite give you that information so the proteomic really ruler is really cool because it gives you this way of figuring out approximating or estimating how many copies of certain proteins in a cell it makes this really cute assumption that the amount of dna um sort of is like not assumption it um it actually measures it the study we did sorry <laughs> it didn't assume they they figured out the ratio of dna to histone signal and then they made the really cute assumption that you know it's sort of there's a set amount of dna in the, in the, the cell and the amount of histone signal is proportional to this you can use the histone signal 
as sort of a, an internal measurement to figure out sort of how many cells were in the sample, sort of how, yeah, proportionally. Um, and it also you know, makes the assumption that the, the amount of um, the strength of the mass spec signal that you receive for a certain protein is proportional to the amount of that protein, which again is a fairly reasonable assumption. And so it uses all of that information together to create, um, yeah, to make an estimate for the number of protein copies per cell. And that, mm-hmm. um, that estimation is really critical um, because it's, yeah, because if you're comparing two conditions and you see that there's a hundredfold change in a protein, you go, wow, that protein must be very, very important in the difference between those two conditions. But if you know how many copies are in the cell, and you know that there's 100 copies in one cell and one copy in the other cell, whereas there's a million copies of another protein and only 20,000 copies in the other cell, you suddenly go, oh, that 100-fold change is, is much less impressive. Yeah, but that's really interesting. And obviously, when you're trying to um, investigate the changes in a cell, you know, as you said before, the, since the protein is the the functional unit, you know, the most important part of the cell, what how it does things, by measuring the changes in that, that's the best way to be able to measure something like the immune system. So from your measurement of the proteins, um, you saw that there was a notice, noticeable drop in expression of um, of proteins in the uh, MEK knockout, knockout cells. And also interestingly, you, in the knockout cells, there was an increased expression of GLUT one and three. Um, what what did you think when you when you saw that? Yeah, so GLUT one and GLUT three, they're um, both glucose transporters on the surface of T cells. Um, and so I guess there's this dogma in the field um, of MIC control. So this, one of the things I probably should have mentioned about MIC way earlier is it's super important in cancer. <laughs> Like, a, like, he, like they discovered it um, because it, it's one of the most frequently mutated and overexpressed genes in cancer. So people have studied it a lot there. And there's a lot of information out there, lots of about it out there in the context of cancer. Um, and so if you look at, um, I guess, you know, the thing that T cells and cancer cells have in common is that they need a lot of energy they need to make a lot of energy because they make a lot of protein and they're big and they divide a lot and that takes a lot of energy. Um, and one of the ways that they do this is by taking in glucose and putting it through this process called glycolysis and it uses that to generate energy. Uh, and so I guess from a lot of work that had already been done on MIC in the cancer field, there was kind of this dogmatic idea that MIC drives glycolysis it drives expression of the glucose transporters like you can see it in pictures on reviews about the, pro- the role of the protein neck in cancer like people say it controls these things and then glute one gets put in the diagram because it's just such an accepted thing that it does i guess you know the thing that t-cells and cancer cells have in common is that they need a lot of energy they need to make a lot of energy because they make a lot of protein and they're big and they divide a lot and that takes a lot of energy um mm-hmm. And even in sort of the T-cell literature, there was one really key study about the role of MIC in T-cell metabolism, so energy generation um, that came out, I think it was 2011, from um, Roynan Wang and Doug Green's group. And they looked at the RNA levels of lots of different parts of the um, 
of the metabolic pathways in T cells. And they had also observed that glycolysis, that project, that process that sort of takes in glucose and makes energy, um, was really um, messed up in, in MIG deficient T cells. And they sort of seen that the expression of the RNA for the glucose transporters was down in those T cells. So collectively, <laughs> all of that information together means that we had we had a, an expectation that these glucose transporters would not be expressed in the activated T cells or would not be induced. Um, and in effect, like, yeah, so when we saw that they were, they, that group one was basically expressed normally and group three, if anything, was a little bit higher, um, that was, <laughs> was very surprising, <laughs> to put it mildly. What's kind of interesting, actually, is since it was something that sort of so dogmatically we'd expected to be down, it was actually one of the first proteins I went and had a look at because when, when you sort of start to validate proteomics data, um, some of the stuff you do is you look at, you know, are the cells, the protein content sort of about what you would expect based upon the size of the cell, like we discussed in the previous question. Um, you, then you go, look, it's already well known that Nick controls certain proteins, so just check those proteins and make sure that they're down down how we would expect them to be. So we ran into this very quickly, and it was it was hugely shocking. <laughs> I tell people this, and they're like, what? <laughs> And another thing uh, that Mick um, that Mick does within the cell is as an amino acid transporter, uh, and you discussed in your paper that you, uh, that you uh, cultured um, one of the amino acid uh, transporters. Was this and was this to show that there was no extra factors when you did it within within uh, vivo experiment? I can give you the overly honest method for this. Um, the honest answer is we did it because it wasn't part of this project in the first place at all. <laughs> we did it because there's another postdoc or senior scientist in the lab, Linda Sinclair, who is very interested in nutrient transporting T cells because it's very important. Like what you can take in fuels all of the processes the cells are able to do. Um, so we already had these mice that didn't have this um, amino acid transporter. And she'd already gone and done a 24-hour proteome on them because she was interested in what was happening. And it was really only when we started thinking about sort of what is the <laughs> data telling us that it's got this really big problem in amino acid transporters and sort of what is the other information telling us that, you know, this is something that goes up very early in a T cell and is really important for a T cell to be able to sort of grow and produce protein. That was when we were like, oh, we have this other piece of information we can actually use to look at sort of how much how much having an amino acid transporter go up matters. Like just because something goes up a lot and then doesn't go up under one condition doesn't mean it's important. You need to be able to sort of functionally show that by not like that by either knocking this out or not inducing or blocking this specific thing that that does have these widespread implications that we're claiming they do so with all the all the information we discussed um uh, uh you, you came to uh you came to a conclusion with the paper with you know with a um with a description of what you found as through the mass spectrometry uh so how does this uh study fit into the wider understanding of t-cell activation do you think it's like stirred the stirred the nest for different models of of mic I would say, like, I think it has gained us some fundamental insights. I think it has 
I guess I like to hope it's moved people beyond just thinking about glycolysis as the thing that MIC does in a T cell. Mm-hmm. So I think we get really stuck on that idea, and it's not true. MIC does a lot of other things. Um, I think it's it sort of it adds to the body of literature that really highlights how important amino acid and nutrient transport is for a T cell response. So I think you know it is gaining some reasonable traction um, in sort of certain with certain people um, who are interested in this kind of thing. Has it redefined our entire idea of a T cell and MIC? No. <laughs> Fantastic. And um, moving away from the paper and more sort of to do with with your career, what what sort of what's your favourite part about about your job? You... having all this great data but if it's not you know significant then you know what, what's the what, what's the point it's, it's sort of like working your way through it and thinking about what it really means and then also thinking about well if that's true then this should also be something we see um, and sort of going back and reinterrogating things it's sort of it's it's my favorite part of this day-to-day job fantastic Well, thank you very much for being on our podcast today and we'll see you later.